Mitch, Mark, talk, Mitch, talk among Mitch, ourselves, right? The three of us uh, would be broadcasting from the historic Union Hall in the Missoula Valley of Montana, the ancestral homeland of the Salish people. Um, but we are recording this show from the comfort of our own homes uh, located in North America. So, well, and we are hope that you are holding up and doing your part by staying at home as best you can by wearing masks. When you do go out into public, please wear your masks. Come on. And by frequent washing of your hands. This show is pre-recorded as our part in halting the pandemic. And we hope you enjoy the show as we enjoyed learning how to put this together without going into the studio in the historic Union Hall. And once again, we want to give old Mick a shout out and hope you're doing well. Mick, we need you again. Won't be long. We'll be in the studio. So, since the beginning of this year that we've only had a couple of weeks of, we've had insurrection, impeachment, and this week, inauguration. So, um, seems like a good place for a sports metaphor. Um, you know, hat <laughs> trick, three strikes, you're out. Three on a match. <laughs> the, eye, the eyes have it. <laughs> <laughs> to trivialize it and try not to choke up over it all. Yeah, and we're not even past the first month of the year. What else is going to happen, right? Let's not even go there. Let's just <laughs> be in the moment, guys. Let's be, be in the moment. We have seen the departure of number 45 from the White House and the inauguration, there's that word, of Joe Biden this week. Yeah, and so the word of the week this week is inaugural. Um, And according to Merriam-Webster, it uh, marks a beginning. It's first in a projected series. And according to our collective wisdom at Wikipedia, the word stems from the Latin augur, which is also an English word that we use, right? Which refers to the... Which originally, Linda, maybe you can inform us of this, which mm-hmm. refers to the rituals of ancient Roman priests seeking to interpret if it was the will of the gods for a public official to be deemed worthy to assume office. Yes, indeed. Um, uh, these uh, priests who were called augurs would watch the flight of birds up in the sky and determine whether they were auspicious coming from the same word, mm-hmm. auspicious or not, for the action that was intended on the day. So it was in a religious context, which we still sometimes uh, seem to hang on to in our inaugural ceremonies. <laughs> but, I think, yeah, but I think the decision had been made some time before that uh, we were going to go forward with this action. So, mm-hmm. yeah, it's an interesting uh, uh, handing down of terms and mutation of terms. So we can. Yeah, I'd like to offer that as long 
along is we're talking about um, cognates uh, run wild. That since the priests were looking for an omen, the word ominous yes. has its roots oh. there. Mm-hmm. And let's hope that this inaugural time isn't ominous. Let's hope not. Yes, yes Jim. <laughs> so Biden's inauguration is the beginning of his administration, which we hope augurs for the good, yeah, not we, anything ominous. Yeah, that's exactly right, Jim. We hope so. The auguring is kind of mixed, however, uh, you know, what happened this week with the riot in the Capitol and all. Yeah, there are several notable firsts with the Biden administration, not least of which is the first woman and person of color to be president. Vice and president. Vice president. She's oh, not. Oh, she's no, not. Okay. She's not president okay, yet. I'm getting ahead. I'm, I, uh, <laughs> I know I'm uh, reading omens there. Twenty twenty four. The first vice president. Thank you, Mark. And the first African American as the head of the military. Yes, that's right. That's right. Um, however, with it's come. This is where I mean by mixed auguring, right? The omens yeah. may be there. Uh, with the confirmation of retired four-star General Lloyd Austin to be the Secretary of Defense, we hope it does not augur trouble. As reported in the Military Times on January 12th, outside experts warned Tuesday that both lawmakers and Pentagon leaders will need to emphasize the importance of civilian control of the military to protect public faith in the institution. Said Lindsey Cohn, associate professor at the U.S. Naval War College, in testimony before the Senate Armed Services Committee, quote, it is a short step to the belief that only professional military officers know how to govern military forces. Choosing a recently retired general officer and arguing that he is uniquely qualified to meet the current challenges furthers a narrative that military officers are better at things and more reliable or trustworthy than civil servants or other civilians, end quote. Yes, and that is really important in the developing world where um, it seems the fast track is to be somebody in uniform and then when the civilian power is no longer credible, you know, here comes the man on the white horse to set things straight. Right. In in the United States, we're not that far away from that. Over half of our presidents were in the military. And in the case of Dwight Eisenhower, you know, he was Supreme Commander of NATO in the early 50s, and he left that role directly to be the Republican nominee for president Hmm. and was elected and started serving in uh, 1953. That's interesting. And he he was the one who warned about the military-industrial complex. Absolutely. He was. So it's hard to be talking about can anticipate the future you know it's a good idea it's a good try yeah i do think that much like president obama when he when he asked uh, chuck hagel to be um secretary of defense because he was um a grunt on the ground in vietnam and they and carried with him that milieu of i'm a rough and ready serviceman i'm not i'm not a technocrat i'm not a beltway bandit um, didn't really work out, but I think it was a nice try. In the case of uh, our our soon-to-be Secretary of Defense, 
um, he's a person of color, which most people in the military are. Yep, that's right. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, maybe he's only been out for X number of months when it should be a couple months more. Well, uh, and, and, and that, with it. I know Mr. Tester did. The, the, the rule is uh, generally seven years to be out of the military, mm-hmm. and he's been okay. out he's been out four. And so just like um, oh, I got you. Ju- just like uh, uh, Jim Mattis, okay, which we're going to get to a little bit, right. um, uh, who was given a Congress had given him a pass, basically, uh, an exemption from that rule. Now the you know the first uh, Secretary of Defense, uh, Secretary of the Military, actually, um, <laughs> this is a more accurate way of saying it. Uh, Secretary it, of War. Secretary of War, as we were even more honest back in the day, um, <clears throat> that it, that this you know there's a lot of concern about granting the second exemption from from this you know two two dots make a line and uh, maybe you know they're gonna Congress is gonna make this a precedent that's that's what yeah. people are afraid of yeah. right? So, yeah. yeah so um, you know since Congress also gave an exemption to General Jim Mattis as I said um, this shouldn't become a habit another first sure. in the, another first in the Biden administration is the first woman to serve as the nation's, or one of the nation's top spies, right? Uh, Avril yeah. Haynes, Biden's confirmed choice for national intelligence director, was the first uh, Biden cabinet position to be confirmed. Uh, if you remember, according to Democracy Now! on January 21st, Haynes was President Barack Obama's top lawyer on the National Security Council from 2010 to 2013, and CIA Deputy Director from 2013 to 2015, where she authorized using drone strikes to carry out extrajudicial assassinations, end quote. Um, And there are other concerns about her, too, for her refusal to condemn torture in the ranks of the U.S. forces, uh, and possible she was alleged to have covered up some of that, um, and her connections to Palantir, a data mining company owned by rabid Trump supporter Peter Thiel. Uh, that does not augur well in, uh, in that congressional Democrats are at the same time clamoring to expand domestic surveillance of QAnon and other groups involved with the capital sedition, along with silencing these groups. You know, my personal opinion is I don't condone what these groups have done, but I remember all too well that you give the spook community more laws and money to surveil, like under the Patriot Act, um, <clears throat> which uh, uh, Snowden, Edward Snowden, has informed us quite uh, thoroughly about. Um, but they will abuse that and use it to stifle dissent of all kinds, peaceful or not. The fact is that there are plenty of laws and forces to capture violent actors. We don't need any more. In my view, what is alarming is the seeming acceptance by lots of Americans of an actual police state. The Biden administration could very well pave the road to that and pound the remaining nails in the coffin of our democracy. May I I say something here, Mark? Yes. I think it's it's related, although maybe my mind is just wandering. But another thing that that uh, reminded me of the Patriot Act just this past week was the whole business about uh, Parler and Twitter and Zoom and all of those, uh, Twitter and um, 
Facebook? Uh, yeah, um, Facebook um, saying they were not going to post postings from such and such a group or whatever. And that really, I mean, I don't agree with what these people say, but it really does bother me. Mm-hmm. Because while I don't agree with what they say just now, there may come a time when I do agree with what they say. And again, if we have a precedent going here of powerful corporations being able to um, suppress right. free speech, I think that's important. So it's problematic that they urged uh, action against the Capitol and so on and so forth. But still, it's a precedent that you don't really want to see uh, necessarily happening. First of all, that the corporations would have that much power. Right. And secondly, that people will just be simply told, we don't like what you're saying, and therefore you won't be able to say it again. Yep, very well said. Very well said. Yep. Yeah, well, yeah, all even, those even though they have, the, they have the right to do that, because it's really not a... You no, know, it's not a... Uh, well, 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 I, right I, that, I, I think I know they're private companies. Yeah, but it is no. still a, a problematic situation. Right. And I and I think that the solution to that is, as with a lot of media, right, is is bring it under some sort of public ownership. Get right. rid of get rid of advertising as a means to sustain these things. Right. And right. and make it and make it so that it is accountable, you know, to, um, you know, basic, you know, I guess, you know, c- civility, right? But other mm-hmm. than that, that's it. There's no, there's yeah. no restrictions. And, right. um, and I think that, uh, uh, you know, this is, you got to break up, you got to break up Facebook, you got to break up these big, uh, yeah. and Twitter and, and, and the rest of them yeah. and have yeah. them become a public utility as it were. Yeah, and you, right. there are many that agree with you both. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, but, okay, well, that was kind of an interruption, but I just felt that... No, no, it's, yeah. it's, 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 it's good. heard and makes a lot of sense. Because yep. what, and, you know, April Haynes is disconcerting. Yes. Yeah. Um, yeah. Um, she does worry me. As for, um, as for our new Secretary of Defense... Um, I think he'll prove out to be a really good guy, much yeah. the same way yeah. Mattis, who um, squeaked in, even though he didn't fit mm-hmm. the definition of the job or the job description because he was, he was recently in, was the saving grace to the whole Trump um, uh, ridiculousness. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, words define, mm-hmm. define me for what we've lived through. Yes. And, <laughs> right. And, and you know, Pat and Chaos Mattis took care of business and would not be a fool. Mm-hmm. So I'm really proud of the guy. Mm-hmm. Semper Fidi. Yeah. So back to the presidential inauguration. I thought Biden's speech was good. Um, perhaps not amazing, but in tone with what the country seems to need now. Uh, you know, Lawrence in, you know, petted up in Helena said it was absolutely brilliant, brought tears to his right. eyes. Right. You know, Larry's seen a lot more than I have. So I, I consider my inability to be enraptured like he was, uh, my lack of judgment. I, I think that was in comparison to, to Trump. 
<laughs> really. <laughs> yeah. Um, and so, which... Oh, well, the, uh, you know, the cats fighting at night is, um, <laughs> is you know, elegiac compared to the orange one. Well, and, and he, yeah, I mean, he really put the bar really low. So I think, you know, that's, I think that's, that's part of the thing. But, you know, I think probably what we will be remembered uh, more from this inauguration was the poem by Amanda Gorman, right? It was amazing, mm-hmm. amazing poem. Yeah. And, oh, that um, was amazing. Yep. Mm-hmm. And the memes of Bernie Sanders and his mittens, too, I think. Yes, feeling the burn still. Yes, yes indeed. <laughs> yes, indeed. I'm going to you know, have did... to make another folder. My hard drive is stable. That's right. Did you read the one that said Bernie is like your uncle who comes to your wedding, uh, offers you a check, which he's just ripped out of his checkbook, no card, and then asks for the address of the nearest UPS because he has to mail something on the way home. You know, he kind of walked in with an envelope. And a, some piece of paper and whatever. I thought he was wonderful. Yeah, yeah. I only wish he had been the president, and he might have dressed that way then. I uh, love it. He might you know? have. He might have. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, he had, you know he had the jacket. He had the mittens. He was ready to go. He was ready to go. No hat, though. I just you no, know. No, you know. I know, but you his, know. his mother would have told yeah. him wear a hat, but you know. Anyway. <laughs> when he needed her. Yes, right? exactly. <laughs> but, you know, last week, Alan Rappaport and Jim Tankersley wrote in the Times that, um, and I'll quote, as budget chairman, Bernie Sanders will play a central role in shepherding Biden's agenda through Congress. Mm-hmm. And I think he has the job he was born to do, and he's he's going to... Good. I hope he does. I do, hope he does. He, he oh. is going to be the Gopher's worst nightmare. Yeah. Well, I hope so. going to crawl back in his shell. Yeah, that would be good. Would be good. Yeah. Well, well feel the burn. Feel the burn. Well, I'm right there with you, Linda. <laughs> <laughs> I felt the same way, too, but... Um, you know, one guy can't do it right. all. It's good that he's in that he's in budget, and I think that's scaring a lot of people. Yeah, right. Absolutely. And I think that's a wonderful thing. Yeah. I think it is too. It's yeah. time. There's nothing, there's nothing more scary than somebody that believes in the inherent goodness and correctness of what they're doing and doesn't take any prisoners. Right. right. That's right. it. And I'm not talking. I'm, <laughs> I'm not talking about religious zealots or, you know, all of no. her. Um, <laughs> or, or these, or these uh, auger priests either, right? Um, or or right, auger right, 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 right. <laughs> Yeah. Well, the the shortest U.S. presidential inaugural speech, so I looked this up, right? I, I had to find out what the shortest one was, uh, was given by, of all people, George Washington for his second term ah. as president. It was like 137 words. But I'm going to read the entire thing to you just to see how far we've come. He goes... I'll be counting the words for you. Thank you. Um, Fellow citizens, I am again called upon by the voice of my country to execute the functions of its chief magistrate. When the occasion proper for it shall arrive, I shall endeavor to express the high sense I entertain of this distinguished honor and of the confidence which has been reposed in me by the people of United America. Previous to the execution of any official act of the president, the Constitution requires an oath of office. This oath I am now about to take and in your presence. 
that if it shall be found during my administration of the government, I have in any instance violated willingly or knowingly the injunctions thereof, I may, besides incurring constitutional punishment, be subject to the upbraidings of all who are now witnesses of the present solemn ceremony. End of speech. <laughs> say no more, say no more. Yeah. I'm all for upbraiding. Got it all in there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. basically. The original Rastafari. Right, right. <laughs> upbraiding. Oh, boy, yeah, upbraiding. Um, yeah, it, um, humility is good. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, that we certainly can't say that about our the man that Mr. Biden replaced, but whether he's refreshingly short, um, who's to say? You know, history will find yes. if his statue measured up. Right. Well, and Washington likely had bigger hands too. So. Um. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Mark, let's not go there. <laughs> I just did. I just did. You just went there. I just I went there. Stop you now, Mark. you know it's stop. it's too late. Uh, the <laughs> horse horse has left the barn. Um, <laughs> a, another set of actions by Biden augurs very well. So, for instance, he fired National Labor Relations Board or NLRB yes. General Counsel yes. Peter Robb when he refused to resign. Robb, if you remember, was deeply involved yes. in President Reagan's 1981 firing of the air traffic controllers and thereby destroying their union, who were on strike at the time. That act yep. is widely credited with the all-out war against workers and their organizations as the ushering in of full-blown neoliberalism. Robb was instrumental in aiding the Republican majority on the NLRB during the Trump presidency in overturning long-standing precedents that favored unions while protecting employer interests. The NLRB was established to protect workers' rights under the law. His unapologetic union-busting actions were repulsive not only to all working people, but also to the rule of law itself. Good riddance, Rob. Yeah, you're being Bye-bye. good riddance. In my mind, um, Peter Robb is the original sin of neoliberalism yep. and the Reagan fantasy. Yeah. Right. Yep. And right. To, to go to go back a couple of decades, we'll remember that another benchmark in reducing workers' rights, Taft Hartley, was was pushed by James Denman and Harry Truman fired him. Right. Same job. Yeah. Uh-huh. And, and he and he booted him out. So we can't say this is this is unacceptable. This is unprecedented. Well, and no, it, no. You know, go, go back sixty years there yeah. and right. more. And the same thing happened. And Harry, you know, give him hell. There you go. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, isn't isn't uh, Biden? Uh, hasn't he nominated somebody who actually was an associate of um, Elizabeth Warren? I don't know about the connection with I Warren. I think so. I think so. Because, you know, you'll remember that Obama wanted her to be the head of the NLRB. And no, no, clearly... that that was something different. Oh, no, that was the, that was the, uh, the consumer finance right, um, right. protection. Yeah. Yep. No, I think he's... Prote- 
Like, I think he's nominated somebody who was an associate of Elizabeth Warren somewhere along the way, hmm. which, uh, to my mind, is a good a good thing. Yeah, interesting. Interesting. I have not seen in, in my research on this if there was a... Um, Oh, you might be right. Can you find it, Jim? <laughs> yeah, well, I'm thinking maybe Lauren, it was Lauren McFerrin. Yes, McFerrin. Could be. Could be. Yeah, okay. and, yeah, she's taking over for John Ring. Right, and she's been she's been on the board for a while. Um, right. And, That's and, right. And, That's and, right. Uh-huh. And, and under George Bush, there was there was another uh, uh, Wilma, um, oh, what was her last name? Uh, there, oh, I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah, and she and she <laughs> she would. Hispanic name. I'm sorry, I hope I don't sound. She, um, well, she would. Both both right, of them would, would. Both of them would issue these, you know, really long uh, disagreements because essentially what the you know what Trump and Bush before him had uh, appointed uh, people who were not out about to say, you know, to protect workers' rights, okay? They were right. out to destroy right. their rights and to completely, you know, make right. it a, 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 it's, you know, the NLRB isn't all that strong to begin with, and they were out to completely, you know, gut it. So um, there's, I, I have absolutely no sympathy for the arguments that, oh, you know, this is unprecedented. That's that's kind of BS. And um, Have you well, even should, heard that argument be made? Oh yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. Oh, yeah. 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 It's so. A, and um, well, and remember, there's a fifth seat reserved for Democrat that is vacant. Right, and and there's the, 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 yeah. so the next. That, I think the next Republican. Yeah, the next Republican is going to drop off in August, and so and right. Biden, then Biden can, and then there will be a majority uh, of uh, you know pro-worker rights, which is what the NLRB is all about. In fact, employers shouldn't really have anything to do with the National Labor Relations Board except for, you know, except for uh, uh, face the music when they violate the law. That's, (laughs) it's, it's so absurd to, uh, to have uh, employers so involved and having their people on the board. It's, it's, it's really uh, subverts the intention of the law. So, right. Certainly in our country, maybe not in Guatemala or Nigeria or the Philippines. Some some of those the other day at the office for the people that have been in control. Yeah, yeah. Well, uh, moving on here, um, one uh, thing that may or may not augur well for uh, the Biden administration is the flurry of executive actions that he has made. <sighs> Um, so some good things first, right? Biden raised the minimum wage for all federal workers to $15 an hour, which is a good thing, which is kind of a surprise to some people because there's a lot of federal workers who don't make that much. Um, mm-hmm. He repealed the Muslim fight flight ban. He rejoined the World Health Organization. He also strengthened the Occupational Health and Safety Administration, or otherwise lovingly known as OSHA, uh, in its COVID protections and allows... And, and this maybe is the most important one out of all of these, is he has allowed through executive order unemployment benefits to workers who, because of unsafe conditions at their workplace, don't feel safe coming to work. All right. So he's created that, he's created that uh, exception. All good things for work, working people, in my opinion. 
Uh, however, he is also alarmingly backtracking on his promise for a public option for the Affordable Health Care Act, otherwise known as Obamacare, and and maybe I don't I hope it's not fatal. He is lowballing the stimulus yeah. checks from his promise of two thousand dollars to fourteen hundred dollar checks, which to my mind yeah. is toying with political suicide. Biden actually oh, said two thousand dollar checks would be sent immediately to the voters in Georgia if he were elected. Now Vice President Harris is walking that back. It's just unbelievable. Right. Well, and to pull to pull the rug out of all of those organizers, yes. as well as all yeah. of those voters in Georgia, and uh, just to say, okay, now you've voted, now we've got you, and then uh, we're taking it all back. I, uh, you know, uh, I, I really worry that uh, it, it'll lose those Senate seats. As soon as they can be lost, people in Georgia won't forget this. No, nor should they. Well, and, and, and Nor should they. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, um, to make matters worse politically, Biden is going to reopen the culture wars with the Republicans right out of the chute. Um, he is proposing immigration reform, which is a heavy lift at any time for any president. <laughs> But at the same time, he should be laser focused on the pandemic response and the economic fallout from Congress's inept actions. That and Trump's impeachment. I support the immigration reforms absolutely. There's no question that, in fact, it should go further than what he's proposing. But Biden has only a small window in which he has some Republican goodwill to get legislation passed around covid and stimulus checks, and a jobs program through infrastructure repair. These are huge issues that are absolutely must-pass legislation for this administration to prevent another more competent Trump uh, from coming up after four years or eight years. Um, And whether you are with the Republicans or not, immigration reform is a culture war issue. And opening that can of worms before you finish the essential job at hand is political malpractice. It seems incompetence is not limited to Trump. In my view, there should be no honeymoon for Joe Biden. Uh, and I don't think yeah. there will be. I don't think he's going to have one. No. I, I, um, you know, I think, like- I think Mitch McConnell is trying to uh, manipulate him already. Oh. And... Um, I think the Republicans will use him as they hope they can. Yep. And uh, yeah. he may feel beholden to them in some way. I don't know exactly, yeah. but uh, I think you. I think you've got it. No honeymoon for Joe. No honeymoon. That's, and the precedent is there. What did Mitch McConnell say immediately after Barack Obama was president? Right. Yeah. When he was in a he was in sure. a smoke-filled room with uh, ten of his fellow mobsters. And they made the pact that Mr. Obama was going to be a one-term president. Right. Well, yeah. it didn't work out that well, way. Well, they no, should I, they should get rid I, of the uh, uh, the filibuster at the at this point too. Right. But but you know right. what? I, I don't have any I don't have any confidence that the leadership of the Democrats in the Senate is going to be strong. I mean, they're already negotiating with you know right. uh, uh, you know with McConnell. Over things where they should say, mm, you know, just take a back seat, you know, uh, <laughs> you know, and yeah. they're trying this yeah. this bipartisan stuff, which you know, okay, try it for two weeks, 
and push start start pushing big things through. And if it doesn't happen, then say, you know, sorry, McConnell, we're going to carry this ourselves, and we're going to do right. it, do it right. the, the you know the easier way. So, right. Um, you know what concerns me is um, the president uh, by going after immigration and making a spectacle of it is uh, is doing something nice for a group of people that aren't that don't have political power but they have you know they have a moral right yeah of course now, if he was going if he was going after medic um, you know, affordable care act medicare and um having uh you know medicare for all right a lot of toes get stepped on and joe was there when he saw the debacle of <laughs> of trying to get something reasonable passed you know and the you know the affordable care act was a huge achievement but it was more a political achievement than it was a practical achievement right. that made any life any better right Stakeholders still got what they needed right and so and, but but who's so I'm right thinking, go after immigration because you're going to do wonderful things for good people um but if you go after health care, you're doomed because the people that own this country have got a bird's nest on the ground. And, they're, and you know, you're not making money on manufacturing any longer, but there is a fortune to be made playing with health care. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And that's yeah. their game. Yeah. Yeah. Well, moving on. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Lots of news to cover from this week for sure. What do you see first, Mr. Anderlin? Well, despite all of the p- political turmoil, unfortunately the pandemic is still with us and is still pretty much the worst it's been in the U.S. Uh, for most of the uh, most of the year. The overall uh, number of new daily COVID-19 cases is dropping, but still very high, now at a rate of about 188,000 cases a day. I think it's fair to say that the coronavirus is still wildly out of control in the U.S. For those of you who believe that we need to risk COVID infection to save the economy, the economy will not recover until people feel safe enough from the coronavirus and have enough money to spend into the economy. The World Health Organization advises uh, governments that before reopening, rates of positivity in testing should remain at 5% or lower for at least 14 days, which means that out of all tests conducted, how many came back positive for COVID-19 should be 5% or less for two weeks. Montana, in the past two weeks, has not met the goal with a decreasing positivity rate of 8%, which isn't bad, but still not 5 Some of the highest positivity rates in the nation are in Idaho at 34% and South Dakota at 30% with North Dakota and Wyoming steady at 5%. Uh, This may have to do with the intensity of anti-mass protests in both Idaho and South Dakota. That's my speculation. Montana Montana has reported 138 hospitalizations as of Friday, a decrease of 50 from a week ago, which is good. Um, but But it's still continuing to put stress on weary staff in filling up ICU beds and stretching medical resources in the state to its limit. 
This is still a grave concern right now. According to the Missoulian on January 22nd, six out of 10 of Montana's large hospitals reported having limited bed availability or being near capacity, while four of the 10 reported limited availability of intensive care units. And according to a report on January 15th in STAT, a new, more transmissible variant of the virus that causes COVID-19 could sweep the United States in coming weeks and become the dominant strain as soon as March, leading to a new surge of cases through the spring, the the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention warned. Uh, The CDC believes the variant known as B117 is still circulating at low levels in the U.S. CDC officials acknowledge that that the variant is likely more widespread here than is currently recognized. The B117 variant, first reported in the United Kingdom, transmits more easily from person to person, as if we need that, right? Um, It is thought that people infected with it develop higher levels of virus in their upper respiratory tracts. Some studies suggest that the variant is about 50% more transmissible than existing iterations of the SARS-CoV-2 virus. And by the way, I'll add in, um, there are some evidence that it is more spreadable, more transmissible among children as well. Yes, that's all we need. Yeah. The people clamoring for get kids back in school. Right, right, exactly. Yes. So um, anyway, there's no evidence to show that the variant triggers more severe disease, but that's a little reassurance given the speed at which it spreads. So according to the WHO, World Health Organization, positivity standards shouldn't the new governor, Gianforte, consider more statewide closures and limitations? Yes. And I'll rewrite that too, Jim. <laughs> um. Oh, no, no, no. I, um, you know, repetition um, has impact. If, we, if I use the same verbiage every week, it'll sink in. You know, Goebbels is sure worked for him. That's right. That's, that's where I get my playbook from. Um, um, yeah, he should consider uh, more closures, but he has promised he won't. Um, thanks to Congress and their inaction and, and inept action, we still don't have enough money in the economy through stimulus checks, compounding the problems and trying to control the pandemic. Congress's inaction and misaction has put states in a very tough position either close down the economy to control COVID, but severely reduce people's income, or leave the economy partially open to allow more people, more economic security, but to allow the pandemic to infect and kill more people than otherwise would be the case, which is the second is what Governor uh, Gianforte is uh, apparently deciding on. Oh, naturally, it's the wrong thing to do. Well, who can say, you know, I mean, right. you're, you're in a tough spot no matter what you choose, right? Well, we'll find out because we're all working till we're 600, so there's plenty of time. Or <laughs> his principles to prove themselves out. That's right. That was Noah that, that worked until he was 600, that's right. right? Who didn't have a retirement plan. Oh, my goodness. <laughs> well, that's why he had to keep working. You know, no retirement plan. Exactly. Uh, Exactly. 
Well, these COVID-19 figures are according to the Johns Hopkins Coronavirus Resource Center website and the state of Montana. We are certainly nowhere near done with this virus yet, uh, as it is still at large in the U.S. and spreading. At over 412,000 deaths, which is way more than the casualties that we, uh, deaths we suffered in World War II, I believe, right, Jim? Yeah, um, in fact, um, it's, it's right on the nose because of um, Ohio University at their you know, labor library uh, has combined industrial accidents with war casualties. Oh, and that yeah. number is between 412 and 415. Wow. So we're, that's the number that I always use because there was a war at home getting materiel out to the world, not just a, to us. And that and that was over three and a half years as well, right? So, oh, yeah. Well, uh-huh. actually, we were making stuff before. You know, oh, true, actually, yes. Of right. course, I know it's it's uh, that n- the most most pessimistic number, the one that's most inclusive and and doesn't leave anything out is four twelve to four fifteen. Yeah, wow. And that's the one I go by. So, so when I was saying eight months ago, yes, at the rate of things going, you know, by the end of January, we're going to have you know four hundred and some deaths. You know, thousand deaths. Yeah, you called that one about right, Jim. Um, uh, but so, train me well. I hope you. Do, I hope. <laughs> I hope the thing sort through all the O fall and detritus. Well, and you know, and and what that all kind of comes to uh, mean is that the U.S. accounted for twenty percent of all the deaths in the world, and for twenty-five percent of all the confirmed cases, all with still only four percent of the world's population. You know, those figures sound familiar to me, and I think it has something to do. I think it's also, they're also about the figures for what percentage of the energy uh, that's used in the world we use and what percentage of the world's population we are. I think it's 24.5%. Is that right? Yeah. No, you nailed it, Sue. Uh, that's okay. That's okay. You're not too this week. I'm sorry. Yeah, oh, that's okay. It's like I, you know, it just dawned on me just now that we're about 20 percent of the world's, about four percent or five percent of the world's population, I think. Yes. And we use about 20 or 22 percent of all of the energy. So we're just outlandishly um, excessive. That's probably redundant. We're, but we are just we're, an excessive sort of population. We're we're number you know, we're number one. We're number one. I know. As Jim keeps saying, that's not a good thing to be first at, is it? That's right. 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 (laughs) Yep. And we've been saying uh, since (laughs) we've been saying since February, and we'll keep saying until the pandemic is beaten. It is basic solidarity for everyone to wear masks, to distance themselves from others, and to frequently wash their hands if we're going to beat this pandemic. In Montana, we need to bend the curve down this way so our hospitals are not overwhelmed. Solidarity requires some sacrifice, but it is essential. For every person that does not do these precautions, we are that much farther from controlling the virus, achieving herd immunity through vaccination, and fully reopening the economy. Yeah. And I'm glad that 
that Linda brought that statistic up because, ironically, for the last couple of days, I have been looking at post after post after post of, from my patriotic friends quoting from Adam Hirsch. Is that his name? Adam Hertz. Uh-huh. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Adam Hertz. Yeah, and, and he had he, he he had a letter to the editor or some kind of pronouncement opinion piece somewhere that was that said. Montana needs Keystone Pipeline because look at all the tax revenue we would get from the leases for having the pipeline in the ground. Mm-hmm. And, um, and and he made it superficially, uh, uh, you know, uh, appealing and attractive offer that was totally vacuous. And it just goes back to how. Uh, you know, the energy dragon gets dragged out, and um, people don't understand the consequences. Yeah, yeah. And, and I had a rejoinder for them that said, well, you know, being a re- extraction economy worked real well for us 100 years ago in Butte, where people, uh, people did, you know, were barely compensated for what they were doing, and yeah. they certainly weren't compensated for the harm that they did to the environment. And a lot of money was made by people that don't have any responsibility to where it came from. Yeah. Yeah. That leads us to vaccines, right? (laughs) (laughs) Well, only pretty circuitously, I've got to say. Hard rock mining is just like sticking a needle in your eye. Exactly, something like that. Wow. That's interesting. Well... Um, yeah. Do you have any news on vaccines, Mark? Well, the distribution of the emergency-approved vaccines has been very slow in the U.S. with all kinds of market-driven bottlenecks. Um, according to a Missoulian report on January 15th, the state of Montana is about a month behind in the very first phase of inoculation for healthcare workers and nursing home residents. Um, and according to the Missoulian on J- January 19th, the Missoula City-County Health Department is on track to begin phase 1B, I don't know where the 1 comes from, but, you know, it's f- the second oh, phase. One, right? Yeah, I guess that's it. Um, phase 1B of COVID-19 vaccinations next week, with senior citizens 70 and older to be the first eligible to receive the vaccine. Missoula County COVID-19 Incident Commander Cindy Farr said on Tuesday, Missoula County is still in phase 1A of vaccinations, which focuses on frontline healthcare workers. The Montana Department of Public Health and Human Services announced Tuesday that the state has moved into Phase 1B, which includes Montanans age 70 and older, uh, and just as we said, uh, and uh, and also Native Americans and other people of color because the COVID has hit uh, those folks especially hard. Earlier this month, just after taking office, Republican Governor Greg Gianforte shuffled the categories in Phase 1B which had previously included essential workers like people that work in grocery stores or that kind of thing. Those workers are now going with the rest of us in phase 1C unless they have a health condition that qualifies them for earlier vaccination, along with those ages 16 through 69 with a wider range of health conditions. Teachers are another one that have been moved to the back of the line, actually. Yeah. Um, oh, is that right in Montana? Yeah, that's yeah. there. Oh, the, yeah, the essential workers yeah. aren't aren't getting the shots uh, in phase two. Mm. After phase As one, you can imagine it's a huge issue in Chicago. I keep getting the Tribune to stay in touch. 
Yeah. 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 Just getting vaccinations. Well, we'll we'll get to that. We'll get we'll get to that in a second. Um, so after phase 1C, the general population in Montana will be vaccinated. Doses of vaccine are still limited in the Missoula City County Health Department does not control how many doses it receives from the state health department. Far said the Missoula City County Health Department has been receiving about 300 doses per week from the state. That amount is expected to ramp up in the coming weeks as more vaccine is produced. By Tuesday, 9,408 Montanans had been fully vaccinated with two doses of shots. A total of 57,221 doses have been administered. Um, so, How does that compare per capita with other states, Mark? Um, you know, it's... it's hmm, I think it's, it's about on par with a lot of other oh, okay. states. The, the whole thing is about a month short. Some states are doing much better, but I think, you know, Montana's doing okay given how slow the vaccines have been arriving. So, yeah. um, gotcha. I think in North, in North Carolina, they're starting to, I know they're starting to give vaccines to people who are 65 and older now. Yeah, um, yeah. So they've moved on to that that recommendation which just came from biden i think or somebody i don't know from from the cdc right right i'm yeah, saying get them out there and give them to people who are 65 and older and just just yeah. be done with it yep yeah so um Holm from the university of minnesota um you know it's the contagious disease school um mm-hmm. was talking with chuck todd on sunday and explained that um, the wheels really fell off the axles on distribution, and every state is struggling in right. its own unique way. Mm-hmm. Right. No winners and losers. It's equal opportunity screw up. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. I think that's true. Yep. Um, and here's the part that's so painful for your correspondent. Um, I don't even want to say it. How are we doing on the economic front? Yeah. Any good news? Well, no, there, there's not. Tentatively. Yeah. I mean, you know, things are kind of like it's floating. The economy is kind of floating along in this sort of haze. I mean, unemployment is down, but a lot of people have stopped looking for work. Um, there, there's been a lot of forestalling of bankruptcies, but... I'm telling you, there's uh, th- th- those could be you know crashing any day kind of thing, um, and um, you know it's really basically just not good. And in the the solution really lies with Congress. Um, they they had uh, when they acted through the CARES Act and whatnot, they really only put a bandaid on a gushing wound. What they should have done. All along, as what we've been saying, is what most industrialized countries in the world did was to guarantee wages and business overhead costs for the duration of the pandemic. Yeah, and you could probably expand that definition, not just call them industrialized, but um, developed, educated, sentient, concerned with their populations. Uh, civil? Responsible. Yeah, responsible. Yeah. <laughs> Well, and, 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 you know, what's, what's even, you know, I mean, Biden has, has come out and said, well, okay, I've got my COVID package here, but he's, he's already fudging on his $2,000 checks, okay? 
And um, in that, in in the fourteen hundred dollars that he is saying he's trying, may not come out until March. Okay, they they may they may not have their economic package done for another month. You know, in contrast that to Roosevelt when he first came into office, I mean he had a major piece of legislation passed in the first week. So it's like. So uh, where's where's the uh, alarm and where's the uh, you know having to move fast here? Um, but urgency here. The urgency, urgency. yes. And I'm, I'm glad you made the reference to FDR because uh, there are institutional weaknesses here that are that are going to cause the whole wall to crack and fall down. Well, it's 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 already falling down. Yeah. Yeah. It, it already is, but... The, the, the public perception of the Depression was, oh, it was, it was Black Friday and then everything collapsed and it just sort of wandered along at the same level and then FDR became president and gradually got better. Well, in reality, um, prices of stocks and equities uh, really doesn't foretell the economy. <laughs> yeah. Then does it now. What did happen is that there were institutional disruptions that caused the mm-hmm. country to gradually grind to a halt. It was like a tractor pull. Yeah, yeah. Lots of noise and excitement at the at the very beginning, but it just gradually fell and fell and fell. And by uh, 1932, it had it had collapsed completely. So it took three years yeah. for the noisy tractor to be stuck in the mud and get nowhere right right and I, that's what i think we're gonna have here right and we're just the in the park yeah, yeah it's just it's gonna erode until it collapses i, I hope it's not mad max <laughs> right I'm, I'm glad we're in western montana and out of and out of the limelight temporary band-aids don't help yeah. Well, and but they're a life ring. They're at least something, right? And right, so right. and so this no, is You're absolutely right. And and if and Biden can't blow this, he's got to do it and Congress has got to do it right. I mean, at least to do up to the CARES Act standard which was inadequate anyway, but um if he doesn't do that, if Congress doesn't do this, then you know, then then we're going to get a, a someone down the road, who's going to say, just like Trump talked about Obama, who failed to bail out the underwater mortgage holders, someone's going to come along and say, oh, yeah, that Biden, he really failed to um, deliver the American people in, in, into economic security. And, you know, and but I can fix it for you. You get a smart guy like Trump, like not like Trump, but um, someone like Trump, but who's but who's smart and competent. Uh, look out. You know, we're we're yeah. we're not that far away from uh, you know some kind of uh, uh, totalitarianism in that fashion. Nope, nope. So in the history of many violent uprisings, has been the nice people tried to patchwork something, and it ultimately was left in the hands of the 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 hard cases, the actors that really meant business. You know, I hope this isn't going to be like a Kerensky government. <laughs> yeah, right. That's right. So, 
Um, I was going to cover, I mean, there's some, uh, there's a big strike happening in New York City right now. Yeah, um, for, I wanted to learn more about that. 1,400 grocery workers went on strike on January 16th at Hunts Point Produce Market in the Bronx after getting their, after their employer denied them a, a dollar an hour raise despite being deemed essential workers during the pandemic. More than 60% of New York's produce comes through Hunts Point Produce Market, the large, right. the largest wholesale market in the world. That's a lot of food, right? And yeah. Wow. Yeah. The, the market in Tokyo isn't bigger. That's, uh, that's an education right there. That's, right. That, that's saying something. Um, and I'm not going to you know, go through all of this, but according to their union, Teamsters Local 202, six of their workers also died from COVID-19. Um, a, a statement by their president, Daniel Kane, said, uh, these are the essential workers who went to work every day through the worst of the pandemic to feed New York. Um, and days into the strike on Tuesday, more than 300 police officers stormed the picket line. Boy, that brings you back in history, right? Stormed the, pic- the picket line that was blocking produce truckers from entering the plant. Officers arrested five strikers from blocking produce trucks from entering the main terminal of the company. On Wednesday, Representative Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez rallied a crowd of picketers while handing out cups of Bustelo coffee and hot chocolate where workers were picketing. Uh, She had skipped the inauguration of Joe Biden to walk the picket line. Um, And then um, on Wednesday night, a 21-car Long train carrying produce showed up at the market, but when the locomotive engineer for CSX, uh, a member of the Teamsters from Ohio, heard that the workers were on strike, he refused to deliver his produce. The locomotive engineer said, we're Teamsters too. Turn the freight car around and headed back to Ohio. So, That's um, astounding, because CSX is, um, you know, Norfolk Southern and largely... Yeah. A Southern Railroad, you know they, you know they they run the lines outside my door here. Yeah, in, wow, in Alabama, right? And for a CSX engineer to be so flagrantly dismissive of corporate interests and to and decide with the strikers, yeah, um, that's a big deal. And I'm surprised I haven't seen it in the local news. Yeah, but, yep. Um, the the other uh, there's there is so much worker activity and st- possible strike activity and strikes happening around COVID. It's just mind-boggling this year, and we we've only like scratched the surface. But there's one story um, which I think because we've covered um, you know the Chicago teachers and how they transform their union into a rank and file union through CIO style organizing. Um, that uh, uh, reporting uh, by In These Times on January 15th, this week the first wave of children, teachers, and clinicians in the Chicago public school system were required to appear at their schools for the first time in nearly a year. While COVID-19 cases and deaths have only increased across the country since last spring, CPS officials and Chicago Mayor Lori Lightfoot insisted on reopening the schools. What's worse, teachers who fear for their safety and the safety of their students and coworkers are being locked out of their employee accounts and having their pay docked if they refuse to return from teaching remotely. And the Chicago Tribune reported on January 19th 
that the uh, union is considering some kind of job action, including the possibility of a strike. Uh, but they're also considering an action shy of a work stoppage, with fewer than three-quarters of teachers called back to school last week showing up each day. Some members are wondering what would happen if they took collective action to work remotely rather than a traditional strike. So then on Friday, 901 out of 3,787 school-based staff members were marked absent, and nearly 90 were considered absent without leave for repeatedly failing to swipe in. Those educators were locked out of their Google Classroom accounts. <laughs> Boy, Google is everywhere, right? And their, right. And their, pay, was, and their pay was withheld, unquote. Um, and then, uh, and Jim, this might be of interest to you on... Oh, it certainly is. Pay, pay, Seattle suburb is a misnomer. Bellevue is, uh, is Bellevue. the mansion on the high hill. Yes, <laughs> yes. Uh, and so... Right, and Payday Report writes on January 22nd that teachers in Bellevue, in Washington, next to Seattle, uh, went on a sick-out strike this week to protest being forced to teach in person. The Bellevue School District has already sued the union, claiming it was an illegal strike. Now the district is recruiting substitute teachers, or scabs, to break the strike. Bellevue Education Association President Snow told KUOW, I honestly couldn't believe it. I honestly couldn't believe it. I've never seen behavior like that from leaders in the Bellevue School District and certainly would not expect expected that when bargaining was happening. It just feels so out of good faith behavior. So we'll try to follow these two stories as we go along. Yeah, uh, life gets exciting when you pick on Chicago teachers. Remember a couple of years ago seeing all the strikes with the Chicago City Pride sure. with sure. four apples instead of four stars. <laughs> right, sure. right. Well, and you know, um, Jane McAuley, yes. here's what she says. Right. What we need is a strike with the education unions, the transport unions and other logistic unions, the health care unions, and there's one other sector that she would like to, like to right. have. Yeah. And she just said, if we could get... Uh, strikes going amongst those four sectors, we could get what we want. Yep, right? we'd 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 stop we, we'd we stop. We would right. stop the economy in its tracks. Absolutely, exactly. And, and then be able to see how much power we had and be able to change, make the change we want. Yep, and that's that's a vision that we um, promote here in on this show. Right. Absolutely. Right. So. Um, the, the last story is, and this is a Montana-based story, some really shameful bullying going on at the Montana legislature. Among many terrible ideas, such as taking away the emergency power of local pu- public health boards, for crying out loud, and unregistered open carry of firearms just about everywhere, uh, there are two bills that heap misery on an already discriminated group of Montanans, people who are transgender. House Bill 112 would require interscholastic athletes uh, 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 on the women's side to participate under sex assigned at birth. And HB 113, which would prohibit certain medications and medical procedures for the treatment of transgender minors. Both of them are sponsored by John Fuller, a Republican from Whitefish. 
And he is used to bullying as he has tried to do so with me in the 2019 legislature. Um, both, uh, both of his bills are intrusions by the legislature into the purview of the Athletic Association, which already has a reportedly good policy to deal with such matters, and again, like abortion, into the doctor-patient relationship. Both bills passed out of committee on party lines and will likely be taken up by the full House next week. Yeah, oh my gosh. it's terrible. Well, um, it's time for our interview, so we will move to that. And you've been listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. listening to Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%, and you are listening to it on KFGM-FM 105.5 in the Missoula Valley, or live streaming on 1055kfgm.org, and uh, at any time in anywhere that you have internet service on our podcast, uh, and you can find that at anchor.fm backslash mark or search for it on Spotify or your favorite uh, podcast app under Voice of the People, radio by and for the 99%. Today, we are very pleased to have with us um, a guest that maybe uh, some of you have certainly heard of uh, and maybe know, but uh, we have Missoula City Councilman Jesse Ramos on with us for today, and he describes himself as a liberty conservative and uh, we wanted to have a conversation about politics and, and views uh, for the rest of this uh, interview. So, uh, Jesse, welcome to Voice of the People. Hey, thank you so much, Mark. I really appreciate the opportunity to come on today and um, talk about the areas that we agree and maybe some of the areas that we don't. But I think at the end of the day, 
Um, we're going to agree on, on all of the different problems that need to be addressed. Um, I just kind of think of, of um, different solutions that, that maybe some of my folks, uh, whether on the left or right, think of to certain problems, think of certain problems. So um, I think it'll be interesting to kind of hash those out. Yeah, well, that sounds that sounds really good, Jesse. And so um, why don't you first, though, tell us uh, something about yourself? Yeah, well, um, I, I'm obviously uh, Jesse Ramos, and I've been serving on the city council since 2018. I grew up in Libby, Montana, um, came down to Missoula after college in 2009, um, and I, I decided to run for city council because I was seeing so many people um, getting pushed out of Missoula, whether that be from the high taxes or just the high cost of living or the low wages. Um, and I was complaining to some people about it, and they said, well, Jesse, you certainly complain a lot. Maybe you should run for city council, see if you can do anything for it. And I was 26 at the time and uh, wasn't married, didn't have any kids, so I was thinking, okay, what the heck, I'll throw my hat in the ring. And it's just been an incredible journey being on council and working with people on, on both sides of the aisle and, and seeing how local government functions. And I know that it's easy to get distracted with the national government and everything that's going on. Uh, with the federal government, because most everything they do is a disaster, and it does benefit uh, the rich and the, the corporations in this country. Um, but I found a lot of the same things happening at the at the local level, and it's just so much easier for people to get involved at the local level. And I think what people don't understand is that, um, and something I didn't understand, is that most of the things that impact your daily life the most happen at the local level, whether that be uh, police, education, uh, infrastructure, all of that stuff is handled at the local level. And, and it's so much easier to make an impact at the local level. You can have a 26-year-old kid like me throw his hat in the ring and nobody knew who I was and you can actually uh, win and, and um, kind of come out with some of your different ideas at that local level. So um, it's just a lot easier. Uh, you don't have to battle the big money that you do at the national level to, to get elected, and you can really make an impact, a positive impact on people's lives by getting involved in local government. So, Yeah, well, it sounds like, uh, well, you know, I've known quite a few city council people and other political leaders for many, many years, and um, it's it's not an easy job. Um uh, because no. you get you, I mean, and I when when I was with the Missoula Central Labor Council and we, you know, interview candidates right to see whether we'd endorse them or not. Um, I I always made it a point to thank them for running, even if we knew I knew we were never going to endorse them, just because it is um, it, it it's it's not all glory, is it? <laughs> No, it, it is not. And every one of those council members uh, up there, all my colleagues, we're, we're all trying to do what's best for Missoula. And, and um, the pay is not very high. And, and it's definitely a time and, and personal sacrifice for all these folks. And, and I can tell you 100% that everybody up there uh, is doing what they think is best for Missoula. And, and they have Missoula's interests at heart. So it's, it's yeah. been really cool to be a part of that. And, and it's been a great life experience for me just, just being on the council. So Yeah. That's great. Well, and, and, and making that assumption that people are there, uh, you know, unless, unless there's like some very deep corruption going on. But, you know, other than that, I mean, most you have to just assume that people are there uh, in, in legislative arenas in, in locally and in the state that they're trying their best. Right. This is these are citizen yep. legislators, citizen councils. 
you know, they're really not professional uh, politicians. So, but you, you know, you get some of the wrath, I think, from people who maybe don't understand how local government works, right? And and expect miracles. Uh, you know. Yeah. So we get a lot of that. Yeah, yeah. So that's that's you know that's something that I think uh, everyone shares that's, that goes through the political process. Well, um, so I, I guess what, uh, and you make a good point too that a lot of what people experience is is controlled by the local government. Um, and uh, you know, and I'll, I'm just going to bring up an issue here that. Um, was uh, addressed, uh, you know, or tried to be addressed last uh, uh, summer was, you know, in the um, in the wake of the George Floyd murder and um, uh, calls for, you know, uh, redirecting funding from the police into like social goods and stuff. Um, I know that we, uh you know, people I was involved with, uh, we really wanted to see, you know, I mean, we sort of took two tacks. One was that, look, um, as a society, we put way too much responsibility on the shoulders of police to do everything. And um, and that's not really fair for people in that position. Um, and there are some things that they're really, they, they're, there should be other people much better qualified to to handle some things. Um, and then the other is that, you know, there's a lot of money spent on police. And, you know, are we getting the value for the money that we spend on that? And um, and and maybe we should be redirecting some of that money into things like affordable housing. Um, you know, what what's your take on all that? What's 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 your you know, what's your view on that? Well, that, that's a great question. I'm glad you brought this up. Um so obviously what happened to George Floyd was just, in my opinion, absolutely disgusting and egregious. And I think 99% of the population agrees with that. And I found it really ironic that, that George Floyd was um, initially had, had this interaction with law enforcement based on a counterfeit $20 bill. Um, at the same time that the federal government was literally printing trillions of dollars of, of counterfeit money, fake money out of thin air. Hmm. Um, but yet there's this, this, problem in in my opinion with law enforcement the main problem with with law enforcement is that there's so many different laws that they have to enforce and all of these laws have been created by politicians on both sides just trying to get reelected and doing something and so you have so many more of these interactions and and i guess what really turned me off mark in the in the whole uh summer kind of uh protests over it um was not that that um people cared about what happened to george floyd and they wanted to make a difference i i felt like they weren't taking it to the right source um i, I heard a lot of disparaging things about officers and and most of these officers in missoula um have done a great job and they are public servants um but what they weren't trying to do is, is do something that I've been doing for the last uh, three years since I've been on council is true criminal justice reform. Why are there so many laws that these officers are tasked with enforcing and why don't these officers have more resources like we're talking about with um, you mentioned, and it's a hundred percent accurate that these officers are have to wear so many hats. I, I've been on calls. I, I uh, rode along with officers before um, and it's just insane how much they are tasked with. I mean, from uh, traffic stops to obviously personal injury, and they are going from the time the clock starts ticking until uh, they're off their shift. And 
Um, there's just different ways that we can approach it, I think, without attacking the officers that haven't done anything wrong. And, and of course, uh, Derek Chauvin is uh, a, a, a unique case, um, and we don't have any Derek Chauvins in Missoula, and I felt like a lot of people were trying to treat all of our officers like they, they like he was Derek Chauvin, and, and he was the one that uh, murdered um, this African-American man, George Floyd. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's, there's a couple of interesting points you say in there, I think. Um, uh, one is that, I mean, of course, um, you know, most police officers aren't um, Derek Chauvin, right, as you say. And um, however, though, it, it, there is there's too much of that that goes on. And we did a, a and, and we we did a, a little investigative story about the um, uh, the U.S. Supreme Court um, some years ago kind of issued a blanket uh, qualified immunity for police officers. It, it, they, they've, yeah. they've made it almost impossible to hold those bad uh, police officers accountable, which th- I think that's one of the really foundations of, of frustration, right, is, is that uh, police officers can do this and generally, almost in every case, um, are, are you know aren't aren't faced with any kind of uh, uh, accountability, and that and so but that's a legal that's a you know, the law needs to change in that and maybe that's something that you would look at and I mean that's on the national level right it's the U.S. Supreme Court so yeah. you don't have much influence over that but uh, but I mean that would be I mean would you see that as part of the kind of uh, criminal justice reform that would need to happen. Oh, absolutely. Um, I was very vocal about uh, ending qualified immunity. I think when you have unaccountable uh, government officials of, of any kind that have that, that blanket immunity, I think it presents a problem, mm-hmm. a big problem. Yeah. Um, and I think body cams are, are another thing, and, and I was glad to see the city did invest in some more body cams. I, I really want to see us try to adopt um, the ACLU uh, body cam uh policy that they've drafted it's kind of a model policy and i'd love um for for that to happen i mean i tried to introduce some i guess it was kind of half-baked because i was very upset about what happened to george floyd but i tried to introduce some some legislation that uh police officers had to wear body cams at all times um and then i was i met with the mayor and the chief after i introduced that and they said well this this doesn't necessarily work and they explained some various different reasons but i I would like to see some movement around the the not just the body cams and how they're worn but also the public's access to those body cams Mm -hmm. i think i think the the public needs to be able to to see those obviously there's certain circumstances where the victim uh, maybe their family doesn't want that stuff released and you have to honor that but at the end of the day um i think having um body cams on on people of power is is important and heck i'd like to put them on the politicians too so <laughs> yeah that that sort of reminds me of uh well in, in, in national politics for sure about uh you know they should dress like nascar drivers right they should be wearing their corporate <laughs> sponsors as patches on their uh, clothing anyway that's uh, <laughs> a <like> that. <laughs> that's a that's a little aside but um, well, and, you know, another thing that perhaps that you mentioned um, in that is, I mean, I, I, I think that the, uh, the increasing the money for the mental health intervention, um, and, and this is something that I'm kind of close to because I'm, I'm a president of a board of a, 
a small mental health uh, provider agency in Kalispell. And um, there's, there's, I mean, it's, uh, it's a shame and it's almost borderline criminal, in my opinion, of how little we fund mental health resources. And, uh, you know, it, what happened, you know, with the, uh, the public testimony in the city council that's, you know, the city council added more money to that, uh, you know, mental health uh, uh, and I'm forgetting the name of it, but the, uh, uh, you know, kind of the, uh, the mobile crisis unit, mobile crisis unit. Thank you. Um, which like right out of the shoot, um, you know, really helped, uh, several people like the very first week that it was oh, yeah. in- instituted. And, and it seems to me that it, that kind of thing is extremely important. I think that, uh, oh, absolutely. And, and take that, take that, burden off of the police themselves because i you know honestly i know i've some police folks i've talked to uh, they don't want to <laughs> deal with mental health no. crisis but but in fact this is where we've come to in this state after you know some big cuts to mental health services yep that is 100 percent correct the, the dphhs cuts and i think that was 2018 yeah um were just absolutely catastrophic across the board. Yep, yep. Yeah, and that still hasn't been corrected, and I'm not real optimistic that, that the legislature this year is going to fix that um, because, um, uh, you know, Governor Gianforte has got some ideas about um, tax cuts, um, which will mostly go to the wealthy people, um, but also, uh, you know, they, they may be looking at, you know, $100 million cut in DPHHS, uh, which, you know, even if that's spread out among all the agencies, it's already underfunded. And, and so that's, but that's another front, you know, in the battle to try to, um, you know, make our state more livable. Yeah. Yep. I couldn't agree more. And, and we'll kind of see how that plays out this legislative session. So, yeah. Yeah. Well, um, kind of changing gears a little bit. Um, uh, you know, you did mention, uh, uh, before about, um, you know, in Missoula, you were concerned about, um, you know, high taxes and low wages. Do you, do you want to tell us what, what you see, you know, tell us what you see in Missoula. Yeah, um, I appreciate you bringing this up, and, and I guess I'll kind of foyer off that with um, tax increment financing, um, and that's something that, that I have a lot of allies in the in the Democratic Socialists of America, and in, in that party is, is this tool called tax increment financing, and I think um, it, it certainly contributes to the, the higher taxes, and I think it definitely contributes to the lower wages. And I'll kind of explain why. Do you, do you know what tax increment financing is, Mark? Yes, but uh, for our audience that doesn't, uh, uh, please explain. Yeah, so tax increment financing, um, I, I guess the, the most basic part that we have to um, understand before we get into tax increment financing is how your property tax bill was actually uh, divided. So for every dollar you pay a property tax, is not every dollar that goes into the general fund of the city. Uh, it's split up uh, roughly between three main taxing jurisdictions, and that's the city, the county, and the local schools. Mm-hmm. Um, and obviously there's 
we'll, we'll call it 30% for the city, 30% for the county, 30% for the schools. These numbers are not uh, exactly accurate, but just for simplicity purposes. Sure. Um, and then roughly 10% would be for bonds and, and uh, different maintenance levies and, and just different levies in general. So, mm-hmm. um, And typically, when you're just living in your home, if you're not in the TIF district, um, every single one of your, your property tax dollars, let's just say you pay 1000 bucks a year right now, <laughs> that is not accurate for Missoula, but for simplicity purposes... Mm-hmm. Um, roughly 300 bucks would go to the city, 300 would go to the county, 300 bucks go to the schools. Um, and then roughly 100 bucks would go to, to bonds and um, different levies. But a TIF district is created. Um, TIF stands for Tax Increment Financing. Um, and an urban renewal district can be formed by the, the governing body of the city. Um, and in order to do that, there's 15 different criteria that define something called blight. Um, and you have to match, the city has to match two of those. So it's incredibly broad criteria. You could declare um, the you could declare the Hilton Garden Inn blighted under that criteria if you wanted to. But right. what that does, uh, it's, it's, it's a specific geographic area. So I'll talk about Urban Rural District 3 because that's the largest one in Missoula. Um, and in my opinion, the most problematic one in Missoula. So this TIF district was created in the year 2000. And it spans from essentially the walking bridge on Reserve Street all the way down to Cabela's, wraps up around Bancroft, circles back, hits Mount, and forms like this weird triangle. And it's one square mile. Uh, and it was created in the year 2000. So let's just say that district was paying $10 million bucks in property taxes. And those property taxes are being divided, given to the schools, the police, the fire, the infrastructure, the county. Um, the second that district is created, property taxes still go up in those districts. Um, you have valuation increases from the state. You have mill levy increases from the local government. Um, and then, obviously, if, if you have just a vacant piece of property there, let's just say it's, it's paying 5000 bucks in property taxes for 10 acres. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden, a new apartment complex is built on those. And the property tax base goes up to uh, $100,000 that they're paying. So the second that district is created, anything that happens after that, any growth in property taxes is not given to the police, the fire, the infrastructure, the schools, any of that. It's skimmed off the top and given to the Missoula Redevelopment Agency. Mm-hmm. And that agency is just a board of, of appointed bureaucrats, essentially, um, and there's never been a vote cast for them. And this last year, the MRA oversaw a budget of close to $40 million dollars. Of, of public money um, that that they were overseeing, and this money. And, and do you have any clarifying questions, Mark? Sorry, I'm kind of rambling. Oh no, you're uh, you're you're doing fine. I, I just just so you know, I've been uh, I, I I worked on the uh, Riverfront Triangle <laughs> District okay, uh, yeah. back in the day. So um, anyway, go ahead. Yeah, yeah. So. Um, my big issue with it is, so these districts, uh, the, the district I'm talking about, ERD 3, was created in the year 2000. So any growth that happens in that district, um, we have more and more people moving there. Um, and those people are using more services. They're using more police. They're using more fire. They're, they're using more infrastructure. More kids are going to school. But the growth in their property taxes, that natural growth from valuation increases, from new construction, uh, from mill levy increases, their increase is not going to pay for their increased use of those services. Those those monies are going to the Missoula Redevelopment Agency, and we'll get into the corporate welfare side of it in a little bit, but um, that money is used for various types of pet projects. It's used for 
um, the, the corporate welfare, of course. Um, and as a result of that, Mark, everybody's property taxes in the city have to go up to pay for the increased use of services from the people in those districts, who by no fault of their own, their property taxes are, are just as high as the people that are living outside those districts, but their, their taxes, a large chunk of them, sometimes 60, 70% of their taxes are not going to fund police, fire, schools, the stuff they think it's going to. Instead, maybe it's funding the, the Southgate Mall, uh, that road that went there, or maybe mm-hmm. it's funding the Cabela's uh, renovations, or maybe it's funding, um, in, in a different district, the, the Marriott Hotel, the AC Marriott Hotel. Um, millions and millions of dollars going to these major wealthy corporations um, instead. And these districts, Mark, are set to sunset after 15 years. Mm-hmm. So ERD 3 was created in the year 2000, so it was going to sunset in 2015. Well, there's a small provision in Montana Code annotated that states if you sell debt within the district, it extends the district out the length of the bonds for a max of an additional 25 years or 40 years in total. Well, I've heard a lot of conspiracy theories about the um, Southgate Walk or the the Reserve Street Walking Bridge, um, and I've heard it's meant to block mega loads and all kinds of random stuff. But at the end of the day, what that bridge did do was it extended Urban Rural District Three out an additional twenty five years. So that district is going to be in place for forty years total. So till two thousand forty, that district will not be paying a nickel more into schools, into police, into fire, into infrastructure than they were in the year two thousand. So what that means is that everybody in Missoula has to carry that extra burden to pay for those extra services, and the real um, winners in it are the corporations that get these these public monies. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and. Like I said, I, I, I was intimately involved with uh, the Missoula Redevelopment Agency and the city council before, I was pretty sure before you got on to council um, with the with that Riverfront Triangle development. Um, and uh, one, one of the things uh, one of the things we wanted to do was to have a community benefits agreement with the developer that would um, essentially, you know, kind of an exchange for public support, right, for our public support. Um, and what we wanted to do was to make it a better pro- that that Missoula would get more out of the project, right, like, uh, you know, that the workers who would work in the hotel would be, uh, uh, you know, would be able to have free and fair elections if they wanted to have a union without employer interference. Uh, we wanted to make the developers, you know, increase their, um, the number of apprenticeships for the construction of that. Uh, and uh, it, so that we could train a new generation of, of you know, construction workers. Uh, we wanted to have them guarantee um, a certain amount of affordable housing, um, <clears throat> actually per the, the downtown master plan, <laughs> is all we asked. Um, and, um, and the the and then other things you know we you know they agreed with just all the other things but those three things the developers never did agree on and the city council was very i don't know what could i say uh, maybe it was varied um, opinions but um you know some of them thought they their hands were tied some of them were like we were proposing something that came off the moon which was something absolutely not true 
um, in signing like a labor peace agreement, which, you know, when I worked for Unite here at the time, that Unite here had been in much bigger places than Missoula, had come up with these agreements. So, um, so we, we felt like we, we weren't taken seriously or we weren't supported seriously by the city council or the mayor on that. So that kind of fell apart, but that project is kind of done. But in all of that, definitely got a big education. I would say this, you know, and I'm going to play a little bit devil's advocate here. Um, that, um, so, and I, and I think this is probably, you know, if, if we had Mayor Engen on right now, um, he might say something like this, where uh, two things. One is that, um, uh, you know, TIF districts are set by state law, but yet they, um, they only can be used for, like, uh, redeveloping these blighted areas, okay? So like the Riverfront Triangle, it's just a big hole in the ground now, right, with a decrepit parking lot and you know, um, some other older buildings on that. And, uh, and so that's, you know, they would consider that to be blight. And that if uh, using the money, that the increase in the property taxes to reinvest into that area could bring it up and redevelop it to the point where it actually, uh, after the initial investment, you make that back by the increase the huge increase in property taxes uh, collection from that area because of the redevelopment. And, and I think Mayor Engen would probably say that uh, because the uh, state legislature is really has hamstrung uh, local governments from, you know, raising more money, that this remains to be one of the only ways that local government can raise additional revenue uh, you know, uh, to fund services, right, that people want. What do you say to that? Yeah, um, and that's a great point, Mark, and, and certainly something that Ingen would say and has said to me uh, before. So mm-hmm. um, and that argument falls flat, in my opinion, because um, you can't use that money. So when he says that you want to use it um, for additional services that the city has, um that's just not true. The only thing you can use it for is redevelopment within that district. So again, that money is being deprived, even if it was it was less money in those districts. And again, we have to kind of go back to why that property is sitting vacant right now. Well, the main reason is because the city owns a large chunk of that property down there, and they refuse to sell it off to the private sector unless they can get all of their little wish list on it. So they're, they're kind of creating a problem down there and then selling they're starting the fire and then selling you a hose to put it out is exactly what they're doing with that district. So there's, there's a lot of different things that could be done with that if they sold that off to the private sector. Um, but they refuse to do it unless all these different things have been met. And so let's, I don't know the exact, I apologize, the exact year on, um, on that urban renewal district, but any increased property for the most part is going to, to be used uh, to pay that developer um, for years on, on notes. So let's yeah. just take Stockman Bank, for instance, um, uh, down on, on Orange Street. Right, right across the, the street. This is the most glaring example. Yeah, well, right across the street from the big hole <laughs> on Orange Street. Yes, correct, yep. yeah. And it's, it's important to know the owner of, of uh, Stockman Bank is one of the wealthiest people in the state of Montana. And to me, Mark, there's always justifications from politicians on both sides of the aisle 
there's some weird flawed logic that justifies corporate welfare. And mm-hmm. it happens all across the United States, from the federal the state to the local governments. And we see this corporate welfare just really, really, really uh, entrenching our society. And when you talk to a politician about it, there's always some flimsy excuse or some flimsy rationale that justifies doing it. But at the end of the day, the act is still being done. And so for Stockman Bank, we gave them $1.5 million for that $30 million bank um, for a variety of different things. uh, But for the most part, demolition and deconstruction, which is a primary cost of any urban developer. If I wanted to go in and put in apartments uh, to an old old hotel, I have to factor that into my business plan. Mm -hmm. I have to be able to do that. And for the most part, people can do it all the time without this this saying that they need the, the public money in order to do it so mm-hmm. we gave stockman bank 1.5 million dollars but here's the kicker mark we didn't have enough money uh to give them that money in cash so we had to borrow the money essentially we sold bonds mm-hmm. uh, we had to borrow the money to give stockman bank 1.5 million dollars here's the kicker we're spending uh we're paying four percent interest double tax rate um muni bond interest on those bonds for 25 years for a grand total of about 1.1 million dollars in interest um in addition to the 1.5 million dollar handout so Mm. that's 2.6 million dollars here's the big kicker we borrowed the money to give to stockman bank from stockman bank (laughs) we are paying them interest on their own handout it is absolutely ridiculous and I don't blame Stockman Bank as much as I blame the city of Missoula for allowing this kind of stuff to happen. Yeah. I mean, you look at um, the, the mercantile, the Missoula mercantile, that was $3.6 million. We're going to be paying about $5.9 million in total on that yeah. um, over the course of 25 years. So the vast majority of all of this increased revenue, quote-unquote, is going has to stay in the district, and it's going for not only payment of principal, but payment of interest. So the big winners are the business owner and the bank. Right. And the taxpayers and the working man are the ones holding the bill at the end of the day for both of those. Right. And it takes 25 to sometimes 40 years for the taxpayers to see any increase of revenue from those districts once they expire. And the argument could be made, what Ingen is saying, if they actually let the districts expire after 15 years, but they never do. It's always extended to the max of 40 years. Mm -hmm. So it takes generations for them to see any growth in those districts. And the development would have happened anyways. Um, Development will happen anyways because Missoula is a great place to live. But it will just happen without the public... without the public dole initially and the money would be realized immediately to the the local taxing jurisdictions like the county and the schools mm-hmm. um i don't feel as bad for the city because they've done it but um i know why the mayor does it i mean he's getting typically 30 cents on the dollar for every dollar of property taxes but when he creates this special district he's getting 100 cents on the dollar by depriving the schools in the county of money that should have gone to them mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Well, that you explained that uh, quite well, and um, I just we're about out of time here. <laughs> it's been a very sorry. Oh no, that's been a quick half hour. We'll have to have you come back uh, at some point. I, I just wanted to make one sort of last point about this, and you know, um, yeah. I, I've I've kind of worked with uh, TIFs and government subsidy of businesses for a couple of decades, right? In in mostly in opposition. Um, but one, that, that's why, you know, in, in terms of, you know, if, if there were um, more benefits that were accrued to the community, um, other than just sort of a promise down the line that 
property taxes would increase, right? So you'd, you know, after the redevelopment is finished and the and the uh, the uh, uh, redevelopment area um, expires, right? Like you say, then only at that point, then then you're starting to build back you know, uh, what you spent on the, and I think it grandfathers out or supposed to grandfather out. I think it, it's the, the amount of taxes on new development, uh, that goes to the district decreases progressively until it zeroes out until everything goes to those three pots that you're talking about, the city, the County and the schools. And, um, and, uh, so, but you know that's that's a big boost to those private, you know, businesses, and they really owe nothing back to you know, uh, you know, to the Missoula people, right? <laughs> For yeah, because no. because because nothing is asked, nothing more is asked of them, and you know, at some point, I definitely would like to um, talk with you more about uh, trying to put. Uh, because it is state law, we'd have to go, you know, through, and I know there's bills in the state legislature right now dealing with TIF, um, and we'll see where, I, I have no idea where they're going to go, absolutely none, but... Uh, and I've been involved on quite a few of those. Oh, are you? Okay, that's that's what I thought. And what what do you think are the prospects of, of reform of that happening? Yeah, that's a, that's a great question, and um, let, let me back up just two seconds on... on kind of the benefits of the community of TIF. And, and this goes back to your earlier question about um, my thoughts on, on why wages are, are lower in Missoula. And yeah. what's really frustrating to me, Mark, is that we, we give all this public money to these institutions and these major corporations, these multimillionaires, for businesses that produce service-level jobs. Mm-hmm. We've given tons right. of money to hotels. We've given tons of money uh, obviously to the mall, tons of money to, we're trying to do to, to Nick Chakota's deal. And he said, oh, well, I'd pay 40% above minimum wage, which is 12 bucks an hour. You right. can't live in Missoula on 12 bucks an hour. No. So why are we promoting all of these jobs with public money that don't pay their employees anything? Right. Like they, they, they pay these slave labor jobs. So I think as a libertarian, I, I'm kind of of the mindset that um, the private developer needs to um, – I agree with Bernie Sanders on this. I think TIF is, is privatized, uh, private gains and socialized losses. And mm-hmm. we've seen this time and again uh, with TIF. I mean, look at Lucky's Market, what that was supposed to bring us. We gave um, yeah. the, the Lambros family $7.9 million um, for that road on private property for a quarter-mile stretch of road, the most expensive quarter-mile stretch I've ever seen. Mm-hmm. And um, they turned around and sold them all for uh, $54 million to an out-of-state company. But here's the kicker on that, Mark, is that we paid that $7.9 million as a reimbursement to the Lambros family after the mall was sold. So they got $54 million plus $7 million of, of public money for that road to get Lucky's Market in there. Again, hmm. service-level jobs. You don't make hardly anything. And then the movie theater, terrible jobs in there. And both those are looking like they're going to go out of business. So if the ball goes out of business and we lose that tax revenue, it's private gains, the Lambros family, mm-hmm. um, and socialized losses. We're going to be stuck with the bill on that. And those bonds are still good for another 20 years that we have to pay those. So... Um, it would have been the same with with Chakota's deal. We were looking on uh, looking at selling these selling these bonds um, before the construction of that project. Before the construction of the drift, we're set to do that at the end of March. And 
thank goodness we didn't because we saw what happened with COVID. Nobody could have seen it, but that would have been another example of private gain socialized loss. And so I I think that's how you get rid of that that private gain socialized losses by letting the private sector do that and do what they do best um, and not letting the government get involved because then it puts you and me as investors, involuntary investors in a company that we might not even believe in. Yeah, yeah. Well, very good, Jesse. We're going to leave it right at there. And um, thank you so much for coming uh, on yeah. our show. And we hope to have you back uh, another time, too. I would love to anytime, Mark. And sorry for taking us on a, a TIFF sideboard there. <laughs> it's, it's, uh, it, it's inevitable in Missoula, I think. So. <laughs> yeah, well, I appreciate this. This has been a great conversation, and, and I'm happy to come back anytime. Thank you so much. Absolutely. Well, thank you. And um, that was uh, Missoula City Councilman Jesse Ramos, and you've been listening to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% on KFGM 105.5 FM in the Missoula Valley. Well, this is something that I've, I wrote up this past week um, about how I think the Democrats should transform the Democratic Party or the Republicans reform the Republican Party or a third party, you know, that we, sh- we need a political party to do this. Let's put it that way. Um, and there are 10 points. So when I, uh, maybe I'll just read them all out and then we can discuss them and see what you think about it. Um, so... Uh, Number one, become the party of the working class, broadly defined, which means, you know, if you work for some, I mean, that's the 99%, right? Broadly defined, which means refusing money from corporations, from Wall Street, from the 1%. Okay, that's number one. Two, at a bare minimum, protect and expand New Deal programs. See that Medicare for all, Green New Deal, debt forgiveness, free tuition, etc., etc., are merely extensions of the New Deal. Number three, renounce neoliberalism, which always puts markets ahead of people, and which was created in the 1930s to destroy the New Deal. Number four, renounce neoconservatism, which embraces empire and gets us into wars all of the time, and endless wars all the time. Number five, use class issue policies to more directly attack race, gender, sexual orientation, etc. issues. Less virtue signaling and culture war stuff, more concrete action to make all lives better, or in the case of the Montana legislature, purely discriminatory bills like uh, Fuller's two bills, um, definitely renounce those. Um, Number six, employ deep organizing as an operational norm. By this I mean to organize for political change by actually organizing voters on the precinct level instead of simply mobilizing an increasingly shrinking voter base. The Union Unite here and others employed part of deep organizing, deep canvassing, in the success of the Georgia Senate races. 
Number seven, take seriously policies that go beyond the private ownership of the economy. Neoliberalism was invented to destroy the New Deal, and it is succeeding. Therefore, just reverting back to the New Deal is not enough. The private ownership of huge parts of the economy by the 1% has made it possible to create laws that hugely favor the 1%. Number eight, Renounce the lie that the federal budget is like our household budgets. Belief in balanced federal budgets is a self-inflicted wound. Number nine, reach out to Trump or Biden supporters or, or you know, non-third party supporters uh, by offering them a better economy, guaranteed to be more successful than calling them deplorables or libtards. <laughs> and number 10, Work like hell for the working class. Not just words, but actions that takes risks. Take on the big health insurance companies and big pharma, for example. Actions speak louder than words. Amen, brother. <laughs> Amen, brother. Yeah, I, um, I agree. And I think, I mean, I've heard people say since the election that one thing to watch out for is that Trump got more working class votes, more uh, Latino votes than he got before. Yeah. Uh, among some groups of African Americans, I think he got more yep. more um, he got votes. More, he got more, yeah. The, the thing is that if the Republicans can hang on to that the working class that Trump had, uh, they could become this kind of party. Absolutely. I and mean, the Democrats will go down the tubes exactly. one more time. Or yeah, or it would we'd have another change in identities of the party. Now I'm I don't think either one is very likely, but it's possible. No. But it used to be the Republicans were the, the the party of the party of Lincoln of anti-slavery and of the working person. Sure. And, the, and the Democrats were the party of slavery and the man. <laughs> and, right. and it was really, you know, around, you know, the turn of the century. And Roosevelt really kind of made it final where everything switched. The Republicans in the 20s were the parties of the rich and the Democrats became the party of the people. And maybe, who knows, maybe there's another switch. Um, I, I, I honestly think think that the, both parties are a ser in serious uh, identity crisis right now, both of them. I agree. I agree. I think they are. Right. right. Well, you know, the, the parties have, have been in a constant state of flux, and they absorb things from movements that are outliers that gradually right. become important. And they're substantial enough that somebody has to grab a big chunk of it and put it in a party platform and attract voters. Uh, you'll remember that in the immediate Civil War period, um, the Democratic Party was, was um, you know, schizophrenic. You know, you had urban immigrant voters and um, farmers that were Democrats, mm -hmm. and then you had the Old South, and, uh, and it was a very uneasy piece. You know, you're running yeah. people for president like, um, um, 
man whose uh, name I can't remember, Scopes Monkey Trial. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah. Um, it's man. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah, William Jennings Bryan. That's it. William, yes, and the populist. conflicted character and a, and, a, and a creature of multiple, of, you know, of a different time. But uh, it was, um, you know, Heather Cox Richardson, who I think is out of this world and who wrote mm-hmm. The History of the Republican Party, was asked, at a book signing, well, when you did a really good job on the Republicans, when are you going to do the Democrats? And she said, I, I won't live that long. It's a much bigger story, a much more complicated, <laughs> difficult story. Yeah. And I'll take her at that. Mm-hmm. So, but, uh, you know, I've been hearing in the recent past, um, you know, you know, you know, the Gopher cheerleaders say, the Democrats really lost in the election, in the most recent election. This is this is a realigning election because blacks and Hispanics and Asians are coming out and voting like Republicans, and we just have to maintain that trend. And the Republic and the Democrats are going to be done, which sounds kind of naive, but I, yeah. I think that's what you were alluding to, Linda. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, exactly. You can twist the data well enough. You can create a specious argument that that's really going on. Right. And listen to AM radio. <laughs> and you're part of the country. I'm sure you hear it all the time. Well, and I think um, another thing that happens is that oh. Uh, uh, Democrats who do not necessarily belong to the working class, um, or how many times have you heard Democrats say, why is it they vote against their own self-interest? Mm-hmm. Like right? every day. When, when we really <laughs> don't often know what, their, what they think their self-interest is, what they would express yeah. as being their self-interest, because... We think we know. It's always economic with us. It's always ka-ching, ka-ching. So why would they vote for somebody who's you know, going to not help them economically? But And economics is important. But the fact is we don't ask. And this is where you get at uh, number six, employee deep organizing. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah. I think Democrats have got to understand better the people whom they consider to be their natural base, but who are not necessarily so. And we need to be organizing and working amongst people who are injured by our system and find out what they think they need rather than our yeah. telling them this is what they need and why don't they vote for us. Yeah. No, that's absolutely true. And there, there is some of the best journalism you could ever imagine is being written on that topic and lots and lots of voices and all of them are credible right and i and it exasperates me that the typical mega hat person would rather feel um comfort in their disdain for those that have had opportunities they didn't have early or capitalized on them and went to college and got jobs where they don't have to get dirty and they get nice pensions and 401k plans and the people that built this country the people that are driving around and pick up trucks and go hunting 
what has happened that's any good for them in the last 40 years? Mm-hmm. It's got to be them damn liberals. Mm-hmm. Hillary did it. She and John Podesta destroyed the country. Mm-hmm. And, they, and if you, you show, you know, you have to pull out economic data and show where they are on a trend line. Um, yeah. You know, they don't want to be bothered and say, oh, get that damn education shit out of, or stuff out of my mm-hmm. face. I know what I believe, and that's all that matters. You know, Kelly said it all. Facts are, uh, are passe. Now we live in the world of emotion politics. But I, I think that's only because uh, the the so-called party of the people, right, has has failed just time and time and time and time again. That's I, what I think. And, and I think then people go, mm-hmm. what's the point, you know? Right. let let's vote for someone to kick over the table at least we'll enjoy right. trump you know uh you know calling people out and making making the liberals you know all hopping mad right, right. you know there there's there's but but it's a it, it's a sign of desperation right and it's a sign of uh i mean look i mean we still have a, a pandemic of uh, uh, deaths from despair in this country, right? The, sure. The, uh, the you know, the, especially in Montana. Well, all over. I mean, oh, and, yeah. and 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 yeah. it's 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 the the kind of thing where our our society is, um, you know, is is empty. It's spiritually empty. I mean, think about think about the um, the people. Like I I know I, I know personally a woman who. Um, it, through my union work, right? She was a, a union member, um, and uh, she got totally wrapped up in QAnon, right? And, oh yeah. And um, you know the the that kind of really ridiculous conspiracy theory that um, you know can only take root in people in a, in a society that has lost its. Has lost meaning. Grounding. Has yeah. grounding and lost no, meaning. Absolutely. Ne- neoliberalism has has ground that out of our society. I mean, very very finely, and um, and people, you know, what do people do with you know the the fact that they're working their asses off and not uh, you know not getting ahead, and that they're being told that you know everything is okay, and then. You get these culture wars where people feel like they're being disrespected, and um, you know. It, well, and they're beca- being called deplorables. I mean, right. who, whom would you follow? Yeah, Somebody who tells you, "I'm clip. with you, and I want to help you out," or somebody who says they're a passel of deplorables. Right, and and that's the way a lot of, of uh, I'll say Democrats um, uh, really do talk about folks. They do. And, uh, they do. Yeah. Sorry. And and uh, I in fact I uh, this I just registered to vote in uh, in North Carolina, and for the first time ever I registered as unaffiliated. Mm-hmm. Because I'm just completely uh, fed up with the Democratic Party mm-hmm. and the way it's behaved in the last I don't know how many years, but. Um, Go ahead and say it. 1992. 1992. <laughs> well, don't get me started on Bill Clinton, right? Uh, right. But, but, uh, but, <laughs> but in any case, I just, uh, I, I, um, it, I know you're, you're saying we need a party to 
do what which we need a Republican Party or a Democratic Party. They're, the parties are the only thing that will get anything done here. But I don't think there's a party that is doing what you're talking about. No. And I can't actually see either of these two parties doing that. Well, and... and well, look at that... OAC. She's got her head on straight. Yeah. I, I think it's comforting that we're talking about reforming parties and not talking about a society that's grasping at straws and is willing to go do something like, um, you know, Stalin starving the Ukrainians, Mao's cultural revolution. Right. Garibald saying we must attack and destroy anyone that knows anything. We have to be a party of the people, of the will. We don't need the intelligentsia because it's too easy to change your mind with facts. And yeah. I yeah. want to be there. And I see a lot of, you know, Tim Snyder, bless his heart, has shown a lot of data that says that we're, that we're knocking on the door. And that frightens me. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And yeah. He's we, good. And we and we are knocking on the door, and that's yes. there. There's little room for error. This is why, yeah. uh, you know, yeah. I mean, yeah. if if Biden were to pass a decent, you know, economic stimulus plan and handle the COVID, you know, responsibly and, and competently, maybe that's even more uh, important. Yeah. Um, and then pass a bill in his first two years, something like. Uh, you know, like it seems to me that the politically the it's not easy, but the easiest um, kind of big move to make is to rebuild our infrastructure, right? And just say, look, mm-hmm. it, it's this is going to be a uh, a five trillion dollar um, project. Um, if right. he if right. he if he's able to do that, then that buys us time to either one of two things. It buys us time to either transform the Democrats or the Republicans into a party, like, like I'm saying, like a real working person's party, not, not, not a fake one, um, which, bo- which both of them are at this point, or to have a third party develop and become that party, okay? I, I, don't, know, I don't know which of those two they're both difficult, and I don't know which one's going to succeed. I kind of support both efforts, just because I, you know, who can say what's going to succeed, but right, but right. but but that's if if that none of that happens, then we are going to see authoritarianism like Jim you described, and I, I have right. I have right. no doubt right. about it. I have no doubt about right. it. And, oh, and I don't the either. was coincident with FDR. You know, this isn't rocket science. Human nature proves itself over and over again. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. The script yeah. is the same. Yeah. Well, um, on that note. <laughs> on that happy note. On that happy on that note. note. Well, well, I. am no, enthusiastic. I'm happy. Well, I, I think there's reason, uh, Jim. I, I'll give you that. I think there's reason for hope that if the Biden administration doesn't make too many mistakes, right? Like maybe they pull back on their immigration reform for a while. I mean, I want that to happen, but. It seems the timing is just really, really off. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and yeah. Jim said, I think, I think it's a um, smokescreen. Well, it could. It, there are other things that are just as important, but David, 
it steps on toes that you can't afford. Yeah, and 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 I and I and I hope you're right, and I hope and I hope that you know, you know, like more uh, saner people in Congress say, no, 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 we're going to do the 2000 check, not the 1400 check. Okay. Those, if if we can press the Biden administration, there's no honeymoon. So it's like, you know, they're, it's fair game right now. Um, I think if people were to press and make sure that that kind of stuff got done and then passing an infrastructure bill or something big like that, that really helps lots of people. Then right. we then we can then once he accomplishes that then we can start working on I mean there's a lot of work to be done there's no doubt about it but that at least would make I mean there's a chance for that to happen and happen in a good way I'm you know I'm cautiously optimistic about that but uh, it, it won't say I'm I I my only optimism comes from the fact that and my only hope comes from the fact that so many people are working on this yes and my fear is that we will do what dem- what americans have done so often after an election and that is say okay well we've at least got the lesser of two evils now let's see what the democrats do right and we won't be trying to push them on these things right we won't be doing the work which is the only thing that'll get them to Yep. Right. what we want them to do, right? So I just think that that is kind of the Rebecca Solomon thing, right? Hope yep. isn't something you get as a reward or a prize. It's something you get by working and studying and finding other people who are doing the work and doing it with them. Yeah. And and that is, I, I think that is hopeful, that yep. during the past four awful traumatic years, a lot of resistance has arisen. Oh. And... Uh, it might get scarier before it gets better, right. but uh, but I like you both. I have some hope that we're not uh, we're not there yet. Yeah, yeah. Well, on that note, I think we yeah. should um, we run out of time. And yeah. I, I, well, Jim's closing argument is we need a Marshall Plan for America. <laughs> there you go. That's that would be a great idea. That's, that you sums know, it up. the wealth or more if this country is owned by a handful of people. That's right. I think Joe needs to put him in a room, put his boxing gloves on, and tell him, this is what you're going to do. Well, they're the biggest bully in the uh, schoolyard, so uh, like John Tester says, punch him in the jaw, right? <laughs> I, mean, I like that. Yeah. yeah, I liked it too. Don't, yeah, don't go yeah. like he and Forty did. You punch him in the jaw. Yeah, punch <laughs> him in the jaw. The biggest bully you can find. That's right. Yeah. Okay, and with that, Mark. Yes. That's. <laughs> we'll get off here. That's well. I I I, I appreciate uh, Linda that you being on the show again and Thanks. and oh, it's been fun. And and our sound sound guy Jim Galan, always a stellar job. And oh, why, thank you. Yeah, absolutely. And, you... and I'm looking forward to using my fancy microphone that is both USB and XLR. With XLR <laughs> is the connection of the student in the, in the historic Union Hall. Well, hey, all right. Well, and that's going to thrill our techie listeners to no end, Jim. Um, <laughs> on the other hand, my eyes have glazed over. Yes. So, there you go. <laughs> so there's two but of you got me already, Jim. Th- so you don't have to say nice things. That's it. Oh, thank you. There you 
Well, you have been listening to Voice of the People Radio by and for the 99% on KFGM, Low Power FM 105.5 on the FM radio dial in the Missoula Valley and environs. Um, or you have been listening uh, live streaming on 105.5 kfgm.org. And um, you can also listen to us at any time at any place as long as you've got that internet connection on um, uh, 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 anchor.fm backslash mark dash anderlich a-n-d-e-r-l-i-k uh, or you can search for it on podcast and your favorite podcast app under voice of the people radio by and for the 99 percent so thank you very much and uh, please let us know what you think of the show and any ideas, you know, let the station know. Um, and again, thanks, Jim and Linda, and we will see you down the road. Democracy is coming to the USA.